Well, I've got good news for you this morning. The leading elders have decided that on Sunday mornings, in order to draw more people in, we're going to be following the trajectory of Oprah Winfrey and Ellen DeGeneres, and we're going to give everybody in the audience free stuff, amazing free stuff. So this morning, each of you is going away from here with a $500 Visa gift card, two tickets to the... New Kids on the Block, Paula Abdul and Boys to Men show uh, at the Wells Fargo Center on June 4th, uh, 24th, and a year's supply of Kreider Farms ice cream. All right. That's what I'm talking about. The next line, I said, you're not going wild like they do on TV, but you did go wild. That's awesome. Now, to be honest, you're skeptical. You're skeptical. You don't actually believe that the leading elders would give out gifts like that on a Sunday morning, and you're 100% right. We wouldn't, so you're not going away with those. Um, In order for news to be good news, it must be true news. The gospel is not good news unless it is true news. Think about that. If the gospel is fiction invented by creative authors to provide an emotional crutch to weak-minded people as they limp through life, then though it may help people cope with the pain of life, the gospel would not be good news. It would be pitiful, fictional, delusional, fake news. We should believe the gospel on one condition— that it is entirely true. Last week, my goals were that you would hear a simple explanation of the gospel, understand why the gospel is supremely good news, and enjoy the gospel more. Today, my aim is twofold, to present to you simple arguments that support the gospel's exclusive claim to truth, so that number one, you trust in the gospel with more confidence. And number two, you become better equipped to defend the gospel. Now, I prefer expository preaching through books of the Bible. This is a little different for me. But I hope that this topical and systematic sermon supports Ephesians 1 verse 13 and Colossians 1 verse 5, which refer to the gospel as the word of truth. Lancaster County needs Christians who believe with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind that the gospel is the word of truth and who are ready to defend it rationally and joyfully. Renowned atheist Richard Dawkins, when asked if he is an atheist, responded like this, I'm an atheist in the same way. As I'm an A leprechaunist and an A fairyist and an A pick unicornist. One of Satan's effective tools is to cast doubt upon the reliability and rationality of the gospel and to position it as a fairy tale. So we Christians must be ready to show people in the culture, in around us, that the gospel is good news because it is. True news. Now, before I I get too far, I should mention that 
People don't ultimately reject the gospel because of a lack of evidence. That's a cover-up. Romans 1 tells us that God is evident to everyone and that in their unrighteousness, people suppress the truth. They, they know about God. They choose to suppress him. Why? If there is no accountability to God, then we do whatever we want. Aha, bingo, right there it is. Every worldview which contradicts the gospel appeals to people because it puts humanity at the center. Is the gospel true? The truth should be our life's ambition. We should pursue it with everything that we are and have. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He also said, I am the truth. Jesus left absolutely no room whatsoever for any competing worldviews. He taught that he alone is truth. So it is Jesus against everything else. Is Jesus the truth? Or is he a liar? Or is he delusional? Back in April, Ravi Zacharias, you might know his name, he spoke in Philadelphia addressing the question, does truth matter? Thousands of people flooded into the Leochorus Center um, to hear him. Ten different universities participated. And in this lecture, he gave a one, two, three, four, five grid, uh, explaining how someone might evaluate whether a worldview is true or whether it is false. I give this to you because I find it helpful. I find it compelling. I, I think um, you guys, if you just file away that little outline, it, it may help you in the future. And I believe, unlike all competing worldviews, the gospel runs through this grid and meets each of the criteria. Here's the grid. Ravi began with, number one, the ultimate pursuit of your life and my life should be the truth. Think about it. Why build your life on lies? That makes no sense. Psalm 25 verse 5 says, lead me in your truth and teach me. Psalm 43.3 says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. It would be foolish to get behind and follow lies. The truth. Number two, Ravi introduced two theories of truth. The correspondence theory and the coherence theory theory. These theories are important in court. Here's what they mean. The correspondence theory says that particular questions need corresponding answers that are true. The coherence theory suggests that all those individual corresponding true answers need to cohere or they need to fit together nicely. If the individual answers are, are uh, random, are illogical, are false, and they don't unite into one coherent answer, that claim or that worldview is false. It's, it's not right. Truth corresponds and coheres. Number three, Ravi gave three tests of, for truth. Logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance. If a certain worldview is true, it will be logically consistent. 
have enough supporting evidence and be relevant to our lives. Logical consistency, empirical adequacy, experiential relevance. Then every worldview must answer four critical questions. Number four, what are the questions the truth claims are really answering? Ravi gave four things. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. In other words, where do I come from? What does life mean? How do I differentiate between good and evil and what happens to humans when they die? Then Ravi gave five disciplines to use when assessing a worldview. Number five, the five disciplines that come to bear are metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, anthropology, and theology. Metaphysics addresses questions of being or first causes or reality. Epistemology addresses how we know things. Ethics addresses morality. Anthropology addresses human societies and cultures and their development. Lastly, theology addresses the nature of God and his self-revelation. This grid can, can help us evaluate various competing worldviews. Now, when you look at the grid, I, I put it down in the notes because it's complicated to grasp it until you have it in front of you, I think, but it demands much study and, and thought. You can't just quickly run through this. There's a lot. But when you're asking huge questions of what is true in the worldview, you're going to need to think through things on a deep, on a deep basis. Now, the more the gospel is scrutinized within this grid, the more it proves itself, and the more alternative worldviews reveal their inconsistencies. Here are a few examples when you think of a grid and some competing worldviews. Relativism denies absolute truth, so the quest for truth would seem to become futile, worthless. Pluralism is incoherent because two contradicting ideas cannot both be true. Mormonism is untenable because there is no archaeology to substantiate peoples, events, and objects mentioned in the Book of Mormonism. Atheism and Darwinian evolution are indefensible because they cannot answer the fundamental questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. The point is that when the gospel is subjected to this gauntlet of tests and analyses, it emerges intact and proves rational. The evidence for the gospel removes all reasonable doubt. One of the greatest defenses of the gospel is the unreasonableness of the competing worldviews. But again, people don't ultimately reject the gospel because there is a lack of evidence. They reject it on moral reasons. They reject the gospel because the gospel has moral implications on their lives, Romans 1. Now, I'd like to offer you 10 supporting arguments for the veracity, the truthfulness, the reliability of the gospel. There are more. I may even be omitting some of the most important and brilliant ones, uh, but, but I hope that these 10 help you. I won't be considering every angle. I won't be handling every objection to these arguments, but when you take the cumulative effect of these 10 and many, many other good arguments, it's quite compelling, the case for the gospel. 
So we begin, number one, the gospel happened. Now, I know this is circular logic, uh, but considering the prevalence of relativism, hey, whatever truth you want to be true is true for you, whatever's true for me, considering how prevalent that is, I think that this should be said. Whatever actually happens is true. The gospel is true because it actually happened. Now, none of us can prove with 100% certainty that the Reformation happened or that Babe Ruth existed or that President Barack Obama actually lived at the White House. If we need 100% mathematical certainty to believe something, we wouldn't believe much at all. We would be obnoxious skeptics on almost all topics. Every person has faith. They, they believe all kinds of things that they cannot prove with 100% certainty. The truth is what actually happened. Whether the majority believe it or not, the gospel happened. Therefore, we talk about it as true because it is true. But it can't be mathematically proved, just like tons of other rational truths. Number two. General and special revelation and the inspiration of Scripture support the gospel. General revelation is God plainly revealing himself to humanity through a brilliantly designed universe. If Genesis 1-1 is true, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then we would expect to look at the universe and see a signature. That's exactly what we see. In his book, The Blind Watchmaker, Richard Dawkins wrote this, quote, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose, end of quote. In Ben Stein's film, Expel, Dawkins actually said that by looking at the details of biochemistry and molecular biology, quote, you might find a signature of some sort of designer, and that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe, end of quote. Now, keep in mind, he is a militant atheist, militant It is striking how Dawkins seems to miss the obvious. The universe is designed. Michael Behe made a great point. He said this, It's important to keep in mind that it is the profound appearance of design in life that everyone is laboring to explain, not the appearance of natural selection or the appearance of self-organization. Psalm 19, verse 1, is entirely rational. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. See, the universe is a sensible and understandable professor lecturing us about God, and many brilliant men and women refuse to acknowledge the obvious. Romans Chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 make it simple. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. 
The eternal power and the divine nature of God are immaterial realities. You can't hold them in your hand or subject them to the scientific method, as is the case for many true things, including love, empathy, compassion. A beautiful painting reveals the immaterial creativity of the artist, and the universe reveals the eternal power and divine nature of God. Even atheists understand this principle as they stand in museums and they, they awe at the works of da Vinci or Van Gogh. When scientists look at DNA, the cell, seasons, nebula, galaxies, whatever, they're looking at an advanced lecture on the eternal power and nature of God. God is revealing himself through the evidence of the universe. Everyone sees and experiences God in this way. Not only has God revealed himself through the universe, he has also directly revealed himself and spoken to humanity. We have numerous credible accounts of theophanies and Christophanies where God visibly manifested himself to humans, and we have numerous credible uh, accounts of dreams, visions, and God speaking audibly to humans. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 say this, long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, right there is a link between general revelation and special revelation. God spoke directly to various prophets in various times, and the fulfillment of their prophecies validated their divine origin. God went a step further. He sent his son to speak. And Jesus performed miracles experienced by tens of thousands of people which authenticated his message. We have historical records of it. What is compelling is that God sent more than just good news. He sent the good news in a person who very few historians doubt exist. The universe is insufficient to explain the gospel, so God sent his son as the gospel. God spoke through prophets, and God spoke through his son. God has not been silent. He has been obvious. Now, let me add that the Bible is not simply a collection of ancient and concurrent writings, but also a supernatural library inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Bible has a divine origin. And its internal logical consistency and coherence, eloquence, power, historical reliability, evidential adequacy, and experiential relevance confirms it is true. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 26, this is fascinating, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The New Testament is both a record of actual experiences, but it is also a divinely inspired account authorized by Jesus Christ, God's Son. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Is the gospel true? The universe says yes. And God's self-revelation in his Son in the 66 books of the Holy Word also say yes. Number three, the unity of the diverse authors of Scripture supports the gospel. 
The Bible is not one book. The Bible is a library of 66 different books written by around 40 authors over the span of about 1,500 years. The authors agree. They all agree, and they all point to one primary place, Jesus Christ. Author Robert Valerde wrote this, quote, Although the Bible was written over many centuries by different writers, the messages it contains are coherent and consistent. The Bible presents a coherent theology and worldview and presents this material consistently. Moreover, the Christian worldview is robust, reasonable, and grounded in history. End of quote. Number four, the abundance Accuracy and unity of the manuscripts of Scripture support the gospel. Many people wrongly dismiss the gospel because they think variances and errors fill the manuscripts of the Bible and therefore corrupt the message, which is is a conclusion that blatantly ignores history, evidence, and meticulous scholarship. The New Testament alone, I think, I think it has 5,000... 686 Greek manuscripts and over 19,000 manuscripts in other languages. The closest work of antiquity is Homer's Iliad, which has a meager 643 manuscripts. Among the overwhelming abundance of New Testament manuscripts, there is about 99.5% internal consistency And any variances among those manuscripts are so inconsequential, they undermine no key doctrines of the Christian faith, none whatsoever. Additionally, the manuscript copies are dated extremely close to the original compositions, the the least time being the P52 or John Ryland's fragment, which is dated within 29 years of original composition. Many are within 150 years. Again, Homer's Iliad is the next best thing, where the closest copy is dated within 500 years. Furthermore, the texts of Scripture were transmitted not by a printing press, but by scribes who, with painstaking attention to detail, copied the sacred writ by hand. So we would expect, by looking at the different manuscripts, to find various uh, transmission mistakes or variances. And guess what we find? Exactly that. But none change anything about the central message or anything really that important. Now, there's so much good research out there, I'm only touching the surface here. So investigate it yourself. But my point is that the integrity of the biblical text and therein the gospel is beyond all reasonable doubt. The overwhelming evidence from textual criticism is a wonderful gift from God. It it is grace to us, and it should build our confidence in the gospel because the research is there and it's unbelievable. The gospel is authentic. Number five, eyewitness testimony supports the gospel. Now, please consider this carefully. Is it reasonable to think that someone's perspective 2,000 years after the events could overrule the perspectives of the many people who experienced the events firsthand? It would be arrogant to say, sure, yeah, mm mm-hmm, 
I think today we have a better perspective on what happened with Jesus than the people who experienced it. That, that's foolishness. Track my logic carefully. We wish the Holocaust never happened. But our aversion to the Holocaust does not entitle us to override the accounts of those who experienced it. Matthew, John, Peter, and Paul were each apostles who wrote about events that they experienced firsthand. And they agree. Peter shared his accounts with John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Apostolic uh, eyewitness testimony sanctions Mark's Gospel. Luke was most likely Paul's companion, so apostolic eyewitness sanctions both Luke and Acts. James was the half-brother of Jesus, originally a skeptic, witnessed the resurrection, became a believer, and wrote the book of James. Jude was also the half-brother of Jesus, also originally a skeptic, also became a believer, and wrote the book of Jude. Hebrews is anonymous. We don't know who wrote that, but might have been written by Paul or another eyewitness. The entire New Testament is backed by solid eyewitness testimony. We looked at 1 Corinthians 15 last week, which makes this point, verses 5 and 5 through 8 say this. He appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. Now, that's a lot of appearing, appearing, appearing. He's appearing. Now, pay attention when Paul said, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Understand, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians approximately 20 to 25 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, which meant hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection were still alive and could be interviewed to test Paul's account and the facts. Now, consider that Jesus wasn't an inconspicuous recluse who lived in the mountains and only had a few friends. Read the Gospels. Jesus Christ was famous in the first century. Famous. And he did amazing things in public that people saw. Tens of thousands of eyewitnesses encountered some part of his life. Uh, Miracles, teaching, death, burial, resurrection, or ascension. And when the New Testament books were published, many eyewitnesses of Jesus were still alive. So I think... The burden of proof is on those who disbelieve the eyewitness accounts. What logical and compelling reason is there to reject first century eyewitness testimonies? We need to present a lot of good scholarship to overturn all of the scholarship that exists from the time period. Not all of it, but some of it. All right, number six. Fulfilled prophecy supports the gospel. This is one that I try to to drill into the heads of my children. Because from within the Bible, you see different prophecies fulfilled, and it's fascinating, and it totally authenticates the gospel. God spoke to many prophets. The test for whether a prophet spoke for God was if the events that were predicted actually came about and actually happened, and the message coincided with God's previous self-revelation. Jeremiah 28, verses 8 and 9 say this, 
As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. Fulfilled prophecy um, authenticates not only the existence of God, but his communication with us. Isaiah wrote down God's message. Read Isaiah chapter 44 and 45 sometime. Isaiah prophesied that a great man, Cyrus, would rise up as a world leader and would liberate God's people from captivity and return them to their homeland to rebuild the temple. Now, Isaiah wrote this prophecy 150 years before Cyrus was born. 180 years before Cyrus fulfilled any of the prophecy and 80 years before Judah was ever taken into captivity by Babylon. Isaiah's prophecies were fulfilled. I'll give you a few more quick examples. Micah prophesied around 700 B.C. that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Nearly 500 years before Jesus, Zechariah prophesied the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and the money thrown into the temple and used to buy a burial ground. David describes the crucifixion over 900 years before Jesus and around 400 years before crucifixion was ever even used. There have been hundreds upon hundreds of prophecies fulfilled in Scripture. Now, it's hard to pin a number down, but some, some people estimate that Jesus Christ alone fulfilled 300 to 400 Old Testament prophecies. So understand what this means. The mathematical improbability of these fulfilled prophecies is so off the charts, so astronomical, that the gospel is clearly beyond all reasonable doubt. Number seven. Archaeology supports the gospel. Archaeology, uh, archaeological evidence rather, which verifies events, places, people, artifacts, and time periods of the biblical and gospel account are abundant and compelling. Scrolls were found in Qumran, Israel, dating to before Jesus and authenticate the Bible's accuracy. They found a tunnel beneath Jerusalem which confirms Hezekiah's pool and conduit from 2 Kings 20, verse 20. There was an inscription found on a a portion of a pillar with the term House of David, confirming the Davidic dynasty. An inscription was found in Caesarea with Pontius Pilate's name on it. Um, An ossuary or a bone box was found with Caiaphas, the high priest's, Name on it, the one who oversaw the false trial of Jesus. The remains of a crucified man were found, uh, verifying the crucifixion techniques of the Romans. A fishing boat was found from the first century, one just like Jesus and his disciples would have used. They found another ossuary with the inscription, Jacob, or James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus which many scholars believe is authentic. Now, that's a debatable piece of archaeology, but could be an artifact linking us directly with Jesus' family. My point is that there is plentiful and fascinating archaeological evidence supporting Scripture and the Gospel. So look into it. Number eight, the existence of objective morality supports the Gospel. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15 explain that God's universal law Moral law is written on everyone's heart. Listen, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. 
Some people argue against the existence of God, but then adopt certain ethics that can only be explained by God. And then, with great audacity, in some cases, they even use ethics from within a theistic viewpoint to argue against the existence of God. It's, it's unbelievable. On what grounds would an atheist or a relativist forbid theft? or adultery, or injustice, war, racism, political corruption, or infanticide. Now, some reject these things, of course, not to remain consistent with their worldview, but because God's moral, objective law is written on their hearts, and they have a conscience. Darwinism, materialism, naturalism, atheism, agnosticism, relativism, and all kinds of other isms provide no logical explanation for objective morality. Here is an illustration of an atheist being consistent with his worldview. It's shocking. A woman recently posited on Twitter a potential ethical dilemma of being pregnant with a Down syndrome baby and not knowing what to do. Richard Dawkins tweeted in response, quote, abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you have the choice, end of quote. Dawkins is being entirely consistent with his worldview. You have to give him that. Back in 1979, ethicist Peter Singer wrote this, quote, Human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. The life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee, end of quote. Then in 1993, he suggested a newborn baby should not be considered a person until 30 days after birth and that physicians should kill disabled newborn children on the spot. Five years after making these statements, he was appointed... DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. This should not surprise us. This is consistent with atheism. It's consistent with the Darwinian evolutionary perspective. We should should expect that that would be their viewpoint. He's taking, Singer is taking Darwinian evolution and atheism to their logical conclusion. He's being consistent. The gospel simply has another take on human life. It views people differently, and it has a view that resonates more logically within the human soul. If there is no God and Darwinian evolution is true, why on earth shouldn't we do whatever we want at the expense of everyone else? Make a good case for why we shouldn't. That's the appeal of godless worldviews. With no objective morality, we do what we want. Right there it is. But the gospel perfectly explains objective morality. God is the moral lawgiver who graciously defines for us how to live. Number nine, coherence within our experience supports the gospel. What the gospel says about humanity is exactly what we see played out all around us and in our own hearts 
The gospel says that without Christ, every man, woman, and child is sinful, depraved, selfishly pursuing whatever makes them happy without regard to other people. And they have no power to change their own hearts. Jesus said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Isn't that what you have experienced in life? It's my experience. Has humanity figured out a way to change the human heart, the human condition, and to truly reform society? Has education done it? Has money done it? Has sexual freedom done it? Are they answers? Only God can change the human heart. If we are all animals, simply cells with no ultimate purpose, carried about by instincts and natural selection and survival of the fittest, if we are not accountable to God or an objective moral law, then why not lie? Why not just commit sexual immorality all you want? Why not steal as long as you don't get caught? See, the gospel matches our experience. Uh, we talked a little bit about adoption. Adoption is a wonderful doctrine of the gospel. God adopts us into his family by his grace and makes us, through Christ, his children. Adoption also exists in the world as a picture of that. Interestingly, in the United States, Christians are more than twice as likely to adopt than the general pop population. They are also much more likely to even consider adoption. Why do you think that is? The gospel is composed of truths that resonate with our human experience. Justice, love, sacrifice, heroism, generosity, compassion, forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, rescue, freedom, power. We are drawn to these things when we see them in our human experience, in movies, in novels, in music, in culture, because there is supreme fulfillment of these things in the gospel, which makes sense. Last one, number 10, the gospel is uniquely God-centered. Every other religion centers on what humanity must do to work their way to God, to please God, to impress God enough to win his favor. Every other religion centers on rituals or traditions or pilgrimages. The gospel is uniquely God-centered. The gospel is exclusive in that it centers on God doing something for humanity and giving salvation entirely by grace. Humanity contributes nothing. It is striking how at the core of the worldviews competing with the gospel, some very different from each other, considerably different, there sits one huge commonality. Man must work his way to God. The gospel is completely different than that. The gospel is in a class of its own. The gospel uniquely says that God does all the work. Listen, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, 8, and 9. Unlike other theistic worldviews, the gospel leaves no room for human merit to contribute at all to salvation. Within every other worldview, you see humanism or the emphasis on what man can and must do. You even see this within other theological perspectives within Christianity. Not ours. We are sovereign grace. 
Now, there are 10 supporting arguments for the veracity of the gospel. We move so quickly, it's a big blur. But you have notes, and we'll post it online so you can hear it again if if you need to grab some of these and go deeper. Always keep in mind that evidence never convinces and converts anyone. You can read the book of John and see that with glaring uh, clarity. Read the gospel. See what Jesus has done. They didn't want to believe. Only the Holy Spirit can enliven the human understanding. Now, I hope, I'm, I'm almost done. Thanks for bearing. We're running late today. I apologize for that. I hope your trust in the gospel is strengthened through this. That's the aim. I know it's a weird sermon. I know it's different than what I usually do. But it's meant to build your confidence in what you believe, what we looked at last week, the gospel. And then I hope that you can take some of these arguments, maybe one, maybe two, maybe three, maybe all of them, and give them to your friends as a defense of what it is you believe. You're you're not an idiot for being a Christian. You're not a fool. There's good evidence for our beliefs. So I want to encourage you, pass on this message, download it, email it, get people, get, get the word out there. Maybe someone that you know will give it a hearing. And give it a chance to think more deeply about the coherence of the gospel. So, as we conclude, let's be really thankful to God that he gave us evidence along with our faith. He changed us so we can believe, but he didn't just make it some spiritual thing. He gave us tons of evidence to substantiate what we actually believe. God is not asking Christians to just make some blind leap of faith. Trust and look at the evidence. Follow the Holy Spirit and look what I have given you in the world that proves my existence and my gospel. The gospel is good news precisely because it is true news. Father, we thank you for this, for your grace. We thank you for leading us in the truth and for showing us in your word, but then also outside of your word, fantastic arguments and defenses for the Christian faith. We have only started to just scratch the surface of the depth of of evidence that you have given us. The gospel is entirely true. Everything it says will, has happened, will happen, is happening, and it's awesome and we need Jesus. So as we go into next week to see why the gospel is helpful news, I pray that the first two messages can fuel us to say, yeah, this gospel can do something profound for me. It can transform me. So God, I pray that you would build the faith and the confidence of your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.